Welcome to the Carrie Newhoff Leadership Podcast, a podcast all about leadership, change, and personal growth. The goal? To help you lead like never before in your church or in your business. And now, your host, Carrie Newhoff. Well, hey, everybody, and welcome to episode 214 of the podcast. My name is Kerry Newhoff, and I hope our time together today helps you lead like never before. Well, can I start just with a massive thank you to all of you. Uh, man, we had an incredible week last week. My latest book, Didn't See It Coming, launched. It is all about the seven challenges in life that everyone experiences, pretty much nobody expects. And I'll tell you, the response has been overwhelming. Thank you so much. It became a bestseller in Christian leadership literally within hours, trending extremely high on Amazon overall. Uh, It took for most of the week and maybe even into this week, who knows, the number one, two, and three spots as the bestseller in Christian leadership, number one, two, and three new releases, most wished for book in Christian leadership, most gifted book in Christian leadership. Thank you. That is unbelievable. You're like, well, wait a minute. How did it take like one, two, and three? It's one book. No, the hardcover, the audiobook, and the Kindle. So you guys have been incredible. If you haven't checked it out yet, I would love for you to do that. The book is really all about the internal battles that leaders face, battles that I've faced. And as I've talked to just literally hundreds, thousands of you, I realized, guess what? You guys, it's the same space. So I deal with cynicism, with emptiness, with pride, largely fueled by insecurity. I think there's way more insecure leaders than narcissistic leaders. Um, irrelevance, disconnectedness. And uh, somebody somebody said, and, and this was funny, I shared this on social. Uh, it was just a text between two friends that they sent me. I'm pretty sure Carrie Newhoff lives inside my brain. Dude, I know. I just stopped reading and stared at the page for a minute because it was just that true and I'm only on page 20. I love hearing stories like that. And, you know, sometimes we have this internal dialogue in our head as leaders and it's not always healthy. And I try to put as much of that on these pages as I could. So the book is called Didn't See It Coming. You can learn more at didn'tseeitcomingbook.com. We have some free cynicism and burnout tests for you to take there. We've got all the links to where you can get it, including bulk copies, because a lot of people who have read it are now going out and buying it for their teams uh, because they want everyone to go through it. Seminaries have already started to make it required reading. And a lot of people are like, every intern is going to go through this. Every staff member is going to go through this. The board's going to go through this. So thank you guys. It's been incredible. It's all at didn'tseeitcomingbook.com. We have a couple more episodes coming up this week. In fact, I've got the audiobook chapter one for you tomorrow. And then some launch team background. I did a little bit of a, well, tiny masterclass on uh, launch team background for Thursday. So we got some fun stuff coming up for you. Today, I'm so excited about my guest. When I heard she was going to do it, we had asked. She said, yes, I was so excited. Nancy Duarte is my guest today. And she is going to give you, speaking of masterclasses, one on what all great speeches and talks have in common, the biggest communication mistakes communicators make, and how speaking is changing. Uh, She's written some incredible books Uh, She has advised 25 out of the top 35 biggest companies in the world. And 84% of all top tech companies have her write their stuff. Like she is that good. And she's a lot of fun. So uh, I'm sure a lot of you know Nancy Duarte. If you don't, you will after today and you will want to connect with her. So Nancy, thanks for being on as our guest. And hey, so many of you are jumping on board with online training. I mean, who's really trying to get people in a back room on a Wednesday night anymore? Um, Churches that really don't want 100% of their team on board, I guess. In the meantime, a lot of other people jumping on to trainedup.church. You know that research shows that training meetings typically get about a 60% attendance rate, which means that 40% of the people who volunteer in your church or mission are not on board. They're, they're just not. They don't even know what they're doing. You haven't trained them. So if you brought your training to your phones and their phones, what difference would that make? Trained Up has pre-built video courses. It means you can start with training in every ministry area in less than a minute. Not kidding. They're growing fast. Hundreds of churches have decided it's the right platform to help them train their church 
like never before, including my church, Connexus Church. So go to trainedup.church and book a free demo. It takes 15 minutes, maybe less. You get to see everything about the tool, ask questions, and because we love our listeners here, you can use the coupon code CAREY, C-A-R-E-Y. You will get 10% off for life forever. So head on over to trainedup.church, use the coupon code CARRY, you'll get 10% off for life. So, uh, hey, man, I'm going to dive right into my interview with Nancy Duarte. I think you're going to love this one. It is such a thrill to have Nancy Duarte on the podcast today. Nancy, welcome. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. Yeah, you're taking a break. You're actually at Disney with your family, right? Yeah, my little grandson, he's the cutest thing. So I popped over here because I adore you. I wanted to do this. And it's, it's hot out there. So. <laughs> yeah, so you get into an air-conditioned hotel room at yeah. Disney. That works out well. Well, Nancy, it's a thrill for me. We met backstage at an event we were speaking at last year in Silicon Valley. Having spent all of five minutes with you backstage, connecting, I'm like, would you ever? And here we are uh, doing the podcast. So I really appreciate you doing that. Um, I've been learning from you for years. And as somebody who really, one of the big staples in my life is communication you know, really my whole adult life, I've been communicating in one form or another as a lawyer, as a preacher, as a speaker, as a writer, and you've mastered it. How did you get interested in the whole field of communication, which you've devoted your life to? Because I think I've heard you say you didn't necessarily do well in communication in college, did you? No, <laughs> kind of wiped out there. Um, <laughs> you know, I I always was a a, a, a verbal communicate. I didn't talk till I was three. And once I turned three, I just didn't stop talking. <laughs> and, really? You didn't um, talk till you were three? Yeah. Yeah. Um, and uh, what's interesting is we had, I had a pretty tumultuous childhood. Like mm. um, it, um, mom was actually a narcissist. And now that I'm adult and I can look back, I realize now that a narcissist is missing the empathy gene. And so I had a lot of uh, growing up, like trying to get attention, trying to say, hey, I'm here. Hey, notice me, you know, or like trying to just uh, move my own life forward. And so I did go to one year of college at University of Southern Mississippi, and I got a C minus in speech communication and a D in English and dropped out. <laughs> and wow. I I felt like I was a good public speaker. Like I, I think I did. I used to kind of, I used to travel around the South at 16 and, and do a little preaching circuit. It was kind of fun. <laughs> and um, yeah, but yet I failed speech communication and it was kind of felt like a scarlet letter, right? Like this big, like I failed as a speech communication expert. So once I dropped into the Valley, nobody asked. They just assumed I had an MBA, super, you know, super street smart. I read everything about strategy, about communication, about marketing. Like I knew everything. I was super well read and I just kind of show up with my hand on my hip, start telling older, you know, CEOs what to say, what to do. And they just kind of took it from me. Um, so I think it just, you know, created a lot of moxie. And so I think my quest to be a strong communicator was to fill the void of empathy um, that I'd had uh, as a kid. And it actually shaped my body of work. Every book and article has some scent of empathy in it. And um, it's just something wasn't modeled for me. And so I've had to claw at that to become an attribute that I could own for myself. How is communication about empathy? It's an interesting connection. I, um, <laughs> it's because to really penetrate the heart of someone else, it has to be about them, has to be about how they receive information. You have to understand what a day in the life looks like in their shoes. You have to really empathetically understand what's going on in their life. You know, if you bust in and you have this message that you think is, you know, works for everyone, it, it, it doesn't, it can't. And there's this lesser known um, attribute of storytelling. Joseph Campbell, who wrote uh, um, The Hero's Journey, he's, he's known for that. There's a moment in some of our greatest stories where the uh, protagonist put, does what's called putting on the skin of your enemy, where they, they actually become that person and they see things through their eyes. Like in Avatar, Jake became blue and suddenly they're not his enemy anymore. Right. In, in um, Wizard of Oz, the little soldiers that protected the Wicked, West, wicked Witch of the East, um, uh, they put on their outfits and got entrance into the castle. So it's kind of like this moment where you become uh, and look at life through the lens of another person that you um, can communicate uh, to them in an effective way. 
How did you get from the South to Silicon Valley? That's not a natural move. Yeah. Yeah, that's a good question. So I actually did go to, uh, um, was raised most of my life in a small town in Northern California called Chico. And my husband and I actually met in junior high, but I moved away in the ninth grade to the South because my dad was the oil landman for Exxon. So I went to high school in a year of college in Mississippi, but I would visit Chico every summer. And he and I met, I fell in love. I, di- I just kind of wanted out. I wanted away from the, the chaos and the fighting and everything that my home life was. I moved, Mary, my husband, moved to California into this lovely big Mexican family who taught me what love was. Kind of rewired my brain watching his dad chase his mom around the house and say how much he loves her all the time. I'd never seen that before. So I think getting married young was kind of important for me to rewire my expectation for love and for marriage. And then we served in the ministry in Chico for three years. Um, My husband was an associate pastor there. And I was not a great preacher's wife. <laughs> no, <laughs> kinda, really? No, I kind of taunted the church ladies, which yeah, that's not a sport. Don't do that. It's not a sport. <laughs> you can get bitten. <laughs> yeah. Alive. There was this really kind of crazy, uh, crazy board meeting there where the, the board, they were petitioning for Mark to get air conditioning because his office went to about 120 degrees. And one of the board members said, he's a Mexican. Just get him a sombrero. And we decided, <laughs> ouch. We all both, we had both felt, I know it's terrible. We had both felt like we were supposed to go to Bible college. So we were like, you know, you know, it was just enough to ruffle us a little bit to be like, you know, maybe this, we need to come down to the Silicon Valley, go to this Bible college and we're going to reinvent church. That's what we originally did. We're going to come down here. We're going to make a new way of, um, you know, letting the sick, the maimed, the lost, the broken, the sinner be welcome and feel part of something great. And then we came down here to reinvent that. And then we wound up, uh, Mark started this company, and now we do have a body of people who love and admire and respect and have a place of belonging and a culture that's just stunning, just stunning. And um, it just manifested in a very different way than we ever thought it would. So that's the whole trek from Mississippi to Silicon Valley. Isn't that interesting? So Mark started the company. Is it like, do you work in the company together? So he started in 1988, and then I joined him in 90, very, very pregnant. I was actually trying to get him to give this up. I was like, this is a dumb idea. This is a stupid idea. Like, I work on a real computer at my office, and he'd bought this Mac. So for about two years, it was like that scene in Psycho in the shower where she's like, stabbing with a knife and blood spurting everywhere. We'd come home and, like, henpeck him. Like, this is a dumb idea. This is stupid. So finally, one day, he's like, no, I, th- I have a vision. I think this is going to be a real thing. And he said, just read this Macworld magazine. So I did. And then, <laughs> and then I said, look, if I can sell it, you can keep it. If I can't sell it, we're going to move on. And I had all these resumes stacked up in little number 10 sized envelopes to put in the mail. And sure enough, I called three companies, uh, NASA, Tandem, which is now HP and Apple. And we want to, we want to count it all three. So I joined him. For and your company. He- yeah, so then he actually got carpal tunnel about two years in. And so he's done more like IT and finance and accounting, and I do a client strategy and IP. So he's some, somewhat retired now. Um, he only works a couple days a week, and um, he's a paint. He went back to his fine art. He's my little my artisan, so he's lovely. <laughs> I did not know that part yeah. of Duarte Communications. Yeah. Isn't that fascinating? So he yeah. started the company, and was it a communications firm at the very beginning? He's a technical illustrator. So he was an illustrator. And then that's how I won. And then there were a lot of illustrations going into presentations. And then Apple was the first company to hook up a computer to a projector. I know today that's common. Um, And then in 92, they had a really big layoff. And all of their teams scattered across the valley like lovely seeds. And that moment was a flashpoint for us. So, yeah, he hasn't been very involved for about, about 20 years. But, yeah, he definitely started it. And he definitely is a man of prayer. So he is, he and I, we pray twice a week. And then he, um, he's just a lovely uh, contrast to me. I'm this like fiery, oh, the future, the future's bright and great. And he's like, everything's calm and everything's great right now. Like we're just really opposite. He's more present and I'm super future. And uh, it's good. It's good team. Good compliment. And you ended up being the principal in the firm. How did how did that happen, and what was the impact on your marriage? Or that was just a very natural transition. 
yeah, so I joined and we thought it would just be like, you know, we'd have our little computers in our dining room and have the kids underfoot and then it just like it blasted up. It exploded. Um, But no, we were always, we were always half and half, you know, that's the way it it is. So it wasn't, um, he was excited because he was, he was doing scrappy little projects like newsletters and it was always, it would have probably always stayed a smaller concern. Um, But he's, he's, um, he's like my biggest fan. He's, Mm. he's the sweetest thing. So he just cheers me on and kind of asks, what time do I need to be and where? And let's do this. And um, yeah, so he, he loves it. Yeah. So as you evolved, you wanted to, empathy has been a big part of your story. Um, What services did you offer to Apple and to some of the other companies? Were you like, we're going to help you with your communication? We're going to make you better communicators? Yeah, we started as a generalist. We started as generalists. We do web, print, multimedia presentations, and we would do technical illustrations was definitely Mark's strength. And then um, what happened is in 2001, uh, Jim Collins' book, Good to Great, came out. And that book rocked my life because it had a hedgehog principle in there that said, if there's one thing you could do, you could be best in the world at, be passionate at, and be profitable at, do just that one thing. So the 2001, the book came out. In 2001, the dot-com crash happened. And that was probably when I made the most counterintuitive move I've ever made in my business. And that was that I shuttered the doors on three out of four of our services, just closed the door on all of them except presentations, because I knew they were a mess. I, I knew we could possibly be best in the world at, and I was passionate about it. Nobody else was. This was when PowerPoint, <laughs> this is when PowerPoint default was so ugly. I mean, my goodness, it was like an anvil. It was like working in bronze at the time, hammering things to make it look decent. And um, we decided, you know, we can really transform this entire industry. So we decided to only work on presentations in 2001. And by 2008, I wrote my first book because by the time you focus that tight on something, you can become an expert. Yeah, that's fascinating. So what did you eliminate? Because a lot of leaders have trouble doing that. It's like we are going to shut because you would think when things are going bad, oh, thank goodness we've got four divisions. We can probably, you know, at least one of them will be profitable. You yeah. did the counterintuitive thing, which turned out to be the goose that laid right. the golden egg. Which was smart at the time, and I didn't realize it because we, we did a lot of print. About a third of our business was print. Well, print went away, which is so interesting. Not went away completely, but yeah, right? yeah. Who, who does brochures anymore? People don't do collateral anymore. We don't do these big portfolio folders with all your little bits of brochures. And it was just, it all went away. Um, we did a lot of interactive, um, interactive CDs. Um, with the training material back then. And then um, we also did uh, web work um, too. So we, we, did, we shut all that down and focused just on presentations. Did you take an immediate hit? Like, did, did it go down? Well, one of the things that was so fascinating is the dot-com crash was happening. So the business was contracting because we did a lot of dot-com work. But the presentation part, phone was still ringing off the hook. Because if you think about it, in a downturn or when things get super competitive, you're going to want your sales team with the best story on their laptop, with the best visuals, right? And so it not I'm not saying the business is recession-proof, but it kind of is because then all of a sudden everyone's scrambling to make sure they're the best in the season of a downturn. They have the clearest communication. They have the clearest visuals to convey it. And so that was very interesting to me. So we did dip, and then, um, and then it took off like crazy. Yeah, and you've already hinted at that. So for seven years, you worked on presentations, perfecting, perfecting, and uh, you had a book called, I think it's Slideology, right? Which Mm -hmm. was the first book. Um, And we'll come back to that toward the end. But the first book that really put your name on the map was Resonate. And I remember buying that around the time the iPad was released. And you were one of the first fully immersive interactive books. Like when you talked about King's Speech, you touched on it, and there was Martin Luther King's speech. There was Ronald Reagan speaking. There's videos in it. Like, talk yeah, about how you got the that. vision for that. I love that. Well, we uh, we were we were the most interactive iBook on iTunes like ever. The Apple sales team used to run around with it and be like, look, 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 look what you could do. <laughs> you know, I had to pay ten grand to license Dr. King's speech. Like, people don't realize how much. Yeah, Reagan one I got uh, for free from the Library of Congress, but. I think that when you can actually see it being analyzed, the cool thing about Dr. King is you can actually see the contrast in the presentation form. You could hear his voice. And then I highlighted all the rhetorical devices that he used too, and those all light up so you could see how much of repetition he used and all that. 
I, we love that. I mean, that's what my firm does. And so when that tool came out, we were hoping to get a ton of iBook kind of work too. And we did get it, but mostly from Apple. But I, I actually put that together hoping to be able to re reinvent how textbooks are done because it was so easy. I wanted to like make the textbooks more expansive and more um, interactive. So we put a lot of money and time into that piece as evidence that we could transform uh, textbooks, but they couldn't even get the uh, publishers to pick up the phone, which was fascinating to me. But, you know, I'm an entrepreneur through and through and and (laughs) I'll try anything, you know, once. But that book is is just so beautiful to me. I just loved writing that book. And is it still available in that form on iBooks? Yeah, That's it is. Cool. And there's a version of it. Um, the same exact version is available on our website uh, for free, which is was really risky. The publisher was like, what the heck? I said, well, I retained the multimedia rights. <laughs> it's multimedia. <laughs> yeah, and yeah. So they were like, hey, that's in my said, book you know, contract too, right? Yeah, yeah. If you don't exercise <laughs> them in a year, they go back to me. I know, I know that clause. Yeah, yeah former lawyer. So I... Um, so they were like, what, what, what are you doing? And I'm like, look, if my sales don't spike, come after me, but they're going to spike. And they did. They tripled when I put it out there for free, which was interesting. Wait. Okay. I don't want to gloss over that. You're saying by offering the book for free, your paid sales tripled. Like the sales of the book or the sales in the company? The books. It did a whole nother spike and started to sell at a whole nother level. <laughs> so yeah, freemium works, I guess. And, and is- the one online has all the video. It has all the multimedia. It's crazy. So you gave it away and it Mm -hmm. tripled paid sales. Can you connect the dots? Because I think most people are going, excuse me, like your publisher did. uh, Yeah, they, they, they were, they were startled. Um, I I think it's just an awareness thing. So a lot of what happened is some students started to use it, right? Because it was prescribed as curriculum in the communications courses and then they wanted a copy. So it, it, they went and saw it. And then I do that. Like if I have an awesome audio book or an online book, I want, I want the book as like a token on my shelf. So sometimes I just look at my books and I'll remember, I remember I was here, here, here when I read that. I remember I was in this emotional state when I read that C.S. Lewis book or, you know, like you, and I do that. If I really love a book, I buy the hard copy. Interesting. Well, that, that's, a, that's a great bonus. So let's get into the content of Resonate because there's a TED Talk that you guys uh-huh. need to watch. If you haven't seen it, we will. Link to that in the show notes. But you talk about, and correct me if I don't have the thesis quite right, but I've reviewed it more than a few times in my life. Uh, (laughs) Similarities between different speech structures is sort of the heart of that. And you, in your analytics of famous speeches and communication that I think everybody would say connects, started to realize that like Martin Luther King Jr., Ronald Reagan, and Steve Jobs basically use the same structure in their speeches. Is that mm-hmm. correct? Yeah. 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 What I knew that um, after I went on a three year journey through story, storytelling, story structures, really fundamentally understanding and analyzing what is everything from fairy tales to, <laughs> to tweets. Like I looked at everything and I knew that the really great speeches had like a cadence to it. They breathed in and out. They breathed in and out. It had like a rise and fall, a rise and fall. And that's what stories do. It builds tension and it has cathartic release. It builds tension and has cathartic release. And I knew it did that. And I could, you could feel it, especially in Dr. King's speech. So I just studied and studied and studied. I had a book literally called 100 Greatest Speeches of All Time. <laughs> I, I transcribed them all and tried to see if I could find the patterns. And every single speech in that book follows the pattern, everything from Mother Teresa accepting a Nobel Prize to um, St. Francis of Assisi. I mean, they had a lot. Um, And so I I studied and studied and studied. And I remember one day I was like, I knew I was going to find the pattern. It was a Saturday. I'm like, honey, you go golf. I'm going to work in the office all day. And I saw the pattern. And I remember... I, I mean, it sounds melodramatic, but I thought if if I, if this could apply to Dr. King and a business person like Steve Jobs, then it works. So I did that analysis, fell to my knees, wept, and I was like, this is kind of a lot of responsibility. Then I, I looked at Hitler and I looked at Goebbels, his media guy, yeah. to see if it worked there too, and it did. And that was oh, where so I, for good or for evil. Right. Then I got a little frightened and I was like, should I release this? Right. Then I was like, well, maybe this is just for me and not for the world and and I did. I chose to, I well, obviously chose to release it. And um, it 
I, I went really deep with the analysis because I didn't want to be challenged on it. I thought, oh, financial people will challenge it. Analytical people, scientists will challenge it. It hasn't. I mean, maybe behind my back it's been, but I haven't seen anyone say this is not true. Um, and so I did very deep analysis of everyone from Richard Feynman, the great physics teacher, John Ortberg, actually a lot of his. Oh, John, so, yeah. So he's in the book. Um, just I, I studied even... Um, even Abraham Lincoln's um, Gettysburg Address follows this form, and um, it, 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 it works. I mean, it, it does work. That's incredible. And I, I, I mean, that, that is the, I can still see the, the graph in my mind that, you know, you, you graphed out in the book and in the uh, iBook where you can follow along. For those who are not familiar with the pattern, can you summarize mm-hmm. it? Yeah, it um, the pattern itself kind of looks like pumpkin teeth, for lack of a sexy way to describe it. <laughs> we call we call it a spark line. Um, but what it does is it it um, shows you the contrast. So every every presentation you need to have contrast in it. And what you're contrasting is today's current realities, which is either status quo or very broken, with tomorrow's hope of a greater future. So you contrast what is with what could be structurally as a structural device. So you have a paragraph or two where you say, here's here's kind of what's flawed about today, and here's what could be magnificent about the future. So since then, I've actually analyzed Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, and that pattern was so rapid because he would say the Beatitudes. He would say, blessed are those, for they shall. Blessed are those, for they shall. So he was constantly contrasting earth right. and heaven. Earth and You've heaven, heard it said, but I say to you. That kind of thing? Exactly. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. It's like... Uh, it can like it even ends with a cautionary tale um, with uh, if you build your house on the sand, you shall right. So there even it's not always um, blissful to contrast. The decisions right. you make right now are going to impact your future. And that's kind of what this um, structure is. It's what is, what could be, what is, what could be. And then every great speech ends with what we call the new bliss or or painting a picture of what the future is going to look like if they adopt your idea. Um, and that's how the, it's kind of a, a salutation. Some people make it poetic, uh, but it's definitely painting a picture of what, how great your future is going to be if you adopt the idea that was put forth. Wow. And Steve Jobs did this with the introduction of the iPhone, correct? Yeah, he did. Yeah. And his new bliss at the end was uh, that uh, he promised them. Uh, he said, uh, he quoted Wayne Gretzky. He said, I, we skate to where the, puck is going to be not to where it's been. We've always tried to do that at Apple from the very beginning. We always will. He made a promise that Apple would continue to make revolutionary products in the future. And then they had a John Mayer concert, which was awesome. It, back, then, <laughs> back then it was awesome. But um, yeah, so he, yeah, so he ended everything with the new bliss um, at the end. Yeah. That's, that's incredible. Does a speech have to follow that format to be effective? You know, the greatest ones do. Um, I mm. haven't looked at like I haven't looked at everything. Um, pe- people ask me all the time, well, that was a cruddy talk. I got to see what Nancy <laughs> thinks. So I've learned to be able to just not be analyzing while I'm listening because it would could drive me crazy. But I think that if you want action and if you want them to take action, if their brain cannot contrast between their current human reality and this hopeful future, I don't think it'll drive change. So I would say to have it be a persuasive talk to persuade someone to change the human heart, I do think it um, needs to have contrast in some form. Yeah, that's interesting because you identify this in one of your books. I forget which it is, but you talk about there's three or four different natural styles of presentation. There's the storyteller, there's the data person. I might have these slightly incorrect. And some people would say, well, that's great, Nancy, but like, I'm a bullet point person or I'm just a natural storyteller. So I don't know. What would you say to that when people say, well, that's not my natural style? How, how, does, that, how does that work? <laughs> well, that's the thing that's been fun is like some people will say, oh, I'm super analytical. I'm an engineer at a technology company. And that's what's cool is I could whip out Richard Feynman's law of gravity lecture, right? That was <laughs> right. like, here's physics, here's physics applied, here's physics, here's physics applied. And it still follows the cadence and the pattern. So I I went and found specifically some more analytical um, content or people that I, or contemplative people that I could try. And the structure of the talk um, 
shouldn't be that difficult because it's almost an analytical process Mm -hmm. to structure something well. It's the overlaying of the little layer of emotional peel that I ask them to do that makes the analytical people squirm a little bit. But even... Even technologists are, are human and they, they do feel, you know, um, so it's, it's the analytical peel layer that kind of sometimes gets people's, you know, ire up. So I would say the majority of people listening to this podcast, leaders, probably have a talk to do in the next 30 days. Tons of preachers listening, uh, people who communicate that might be hosting, uh, business leaders maybe giving a presentation, a pitch, or even, you know, presenting at staff meeting. So if you could give them just a primer on, okay, well, knowing that I've got to have some contrast, what might that look like? What are some things they can look for as they write that talk to become more effective and to connect? Yeah, and I I think it goes to back to empathy. Um, I think sometimes we get caught up as leaders in everything that we have to do. We have to get this done. I have to move these people forward. I need to get them to adopt this software, like whatever it is, or I want them to love my sermon and be radically changed forever. And we have our own motive for that. And most of the time it's totally altruistic, but we have a motive and we approach sometimes our talks from our own, what we want done. And we need to pause and stop for a minute and think about, oh, what emotional fuel do those people need from me? Like I've noticed in my own shop, because I'm so future focused, the current present can be a little bit chaosy. And maybe there's people who are like sweating because I've asked them to climb this great big mountain that was almost too tall for them, right? And I'm, I'm like, oh my God, the future. Oh my God, you're going to be so excited. Oh my gosh, you know, <laughs> clappy and happy in the kitchen where they're like clawing at the dirt to try to make it up the last mountain I asked them to climb. And I'm, because I, when you you know, been raised by a narcissistic mom, empathy is not, I can't naturally read a lot of people's body languages and signs, right? Because I'm, I'm, I I didn't have empathy modeled for me. So that's why I have these frameworks in my mind, right? And so what you have to understand is your own emotional state might be very different than theirs and that you need to make sure you're giving them the fuel they need to stay in your story. Like every day they come to your meetings, they come to your church and they're making a decision. Do I want to stay in this story or is it too hard and do I want to opt out? Because there's a moment in storytelling where, um, Joseph Campbell called it the inmost cave. St. John of the Cross calls it the dark night of the soul. And it's that moment when a protagonist in the story is making a choice. Do I want to keep fighting Sauron and carry this ring with me? Or do I want to just stop and turn around and go back to the Shire, right? And everyone, every day they get up, they put their feet on the floor uh, after they exit their bed and they're making that choice. They're, they're in their, sometimes their dark night of soul. And if you don't have that message that gives them the fuel to carry on and keep moving forward, then you lose and they lose. And I think being other centered before you make your talk is the most important thing. Now I want to run something by you because it's something I've done for years. And just see if we're in the same ballpark. So often, you know, I communicate a lot. And what I'll try to do is describe the problem, which is what you said, you know, King would do or um, Steve Jobs would do. Hey, the current phone doesn't, what is. So often what I'll try to do from an empathetic standpoint, I just went through a brainstorming exercise with the team on Tuesday. I start a brand new series on fear. And I'm like, okay, I'm not that afraid as a person. I have certain things I'm afraid of, but we brainstormed fear. Perfect. And you kind of name, a, like, I will start, open the message in the first five minutes, say, what are you afraid of? And then name things like, you know, I'm going to be in a passionless marriage forever, or I'm afraid I'm a bad mom, or maybe you're afraid you're going to lose your job, or you'll never find a job, or you'll never find a person, Fantastic. or you're going to die. You know, you're, what is this illness and where is it going to go? Or some crazy man's going to blow up the world. Like we just brainstormed. I have a bullet list that the team came up with of like 20 fears. And I'll probably shotgun half a dozen of them. Is that the kind of thing that establishes that empathy? Absolutely. And and I think too what happens is as leaders, you know, we have an agenda. We're working against objectives. We're working, you know, and sometimes uh, when I'm going to talk to my team, Talking to my own team is the most difficult, like, um, because when I stand up in front of my own company, they know I'm asking them to change or I'm asking them to do something, right? It has a greater impact on my own, 
own team. And so we do a short listening tour. I actually post my presentation and my deck up for my entire executive team to look at my notes because sometimes they're like, oh, if you frame it like that, they're going to react like this. Or didn't you know this person, this, 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 so say it like that. Or the other thing is, and that's what stops me in my tracks sometimes and made me realize there's a significant gap in, in where I'm at emotionally, but where my team is at. They're they're behind me in a way, like they're 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 just in a different place. And so when I listen and I'm like, what? That's on their mind? I was about to present this way other thing. And so by having some sort of a listening mechanism, which is what you did, and then I do feedback. I My team, they, they know, like on a Thursday night, I'll post what I'm going to tell on Friday. They all go up and post and talk and say, don't say it like this. Remove this. It's going to cause chaos. This part right here is going to do this. This is how everyone's going to react. It gets all tightened up. And then um, we get more traction that way because I add all the other perspectives. But you do that preemptively as well. Mm-hmm. Yep. That's great. Yeah. You know, yeah, because yeah. for preachers and leaders who who speak, we always get that. But often you get that on Monday. You get that post-event, <laughs> right? When it's not particularly helpful because the words are out of your mouth. That always, ship has yeah. sailed. Yeah. I always wonder how a preacher, how one person can go and feed the hearts of thousands, right? Without crowdsourcing what's on their mind. Like, I always thought if I if I had a church, I would have to have a listening device for everyone there and understand what's on their mind to make sure I'm showing up and giving them the, the tools. So uh, in, in myths and movies, a mentor does three things. And, and the presenter is always the mentor. We're not the hero. We're not the protagonist, your congregation, your audience. They're the hero. Because if you yes. have a word spoken in the right time, let's say it's like, it's like, uh, what does it say? Apples of gold on platters of silver or something like that. I, I use the NIV translation. My husband calls that the Nancy interpretive version. So anyway, I know there's a scripture. <laughs> and um, when we um, when we have the right um, thing and we say it in the right moment, it, it, it really rocks others. But I always wondered how, how in the world can you uh, listen to that many people? I only have 120 people and I, and I have all these mechanisms to hear and understand what's on their hearts and minds. So I think I would crowdsource my sermons, I think, if I was a mega preacher. <laughs> you know, it's funny, just a pro tip, and we're not, you know, this giant mega church, but we have about 1,500 on the weekend who come out, you know, kids and adults and volunteers. As we speak, there is a survey, survey monkey going out yeah. to everybody awesome. via email and social channels. What do you fear the most? And nice. I'm going to learn some things in this series about like, seriously, you guys, okay, I didn't even think of that. And there's little hacks. So Nancy does this, you know, you do yeah. this. Craig Rochelle talked about listening before he gives the message as yeah. well. Episode 173, I think, if you want to look that up. So that that's really, really good advice. Um, so a lot of preachers, a lot of speakers, communicators listening. What are some of the cardinal sins that you see in communication? It's just like, ooh, every time it happens, you just kind of go like, glad I'm doing this for a living. <laughs> I love that you combine the word sin and communication because there's, there's, there's a whole lot of scriptures about it's what comes out of our mouth that causes the sin, right? But um, yeah, in the NIV version, that's how it's worded. Um, <laughs> the cardinal sins are obviously no empathy. Um, the other thing is like, I, I think everyone's pressed for time now. Like even TED Talks were so revolutionary when they were 18 minutes. Well, now... They're doing nine minutes, six minute, and three minute talks even at TED because even an 18 minute talk that's bad is still too long for people to invest. So I think that if, if people are going to give you an hour today in today's society, they're going to give you an hour. That hour really needs to be worth their time. And I'm not talking about magic tricks and la 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 and worship that makes your ears hurt. I'm talking about the crafting, like really crafting your talk and taking the time. I know so many people that just wing it and they bring props out and they pace and scream and, and that works for a lot of people. Um, but, but, but crafting things that change the human heart and really understanding, you know, oration and really studying great speakers. I think I, 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 it's not a cardinal sin, but man, how Jesus did it was so fascinating. You know, um, he used a lot of symbols, current cultural symbols and all those things to um, keep everyone, um, you know, spiritually charged, which was beautiful. Um, so I, I think lack of empathy is the cardinal sin mm. and, and also being careless, which is my sin. I'm careless. I didn't single F-bomb in this whole podcast. No, <laughs> I, don't use, I don't use F-bombs, but well, maybe privately I have a couple times, but um, 
yeah, you just have to be careful with how you craft with how you craft things. When you're called, if you're called to speak, it's a big it's a big responsibility. I don't think people wait that. I think extroverts will get up and wing it. An introvert will never do that. They'll be more carefully prepared, but they'll be terrified to deliver it, right? So both are just as equally equal sin, right? You have this divine message, but you're shy and you won't let it out. You you have this divine calling, but you don't craft and you just let anything squirt out. They're both kind of a shame. For business leaders, it's a different kind of presentation, you know, in a boardroom or at a conference or an event or to your peers. What are some typical business presentation mistakes that you see made? You know, they're the same, I think, as the preacher mistakes. They're all just kind of um, sometimes it's flash and no substance. Sometimes it's substance and no flash. Um, so they're kind of the same. We're seeing some interesting trends um, in our business as we work with top execs in the world. And the the speaker or the main leader is becoming more of a curator. And, and in an hour, they may have two to five other speakers that they've knit together. So it's more like they curate a whole like TED session almost, right? Where the, you combine these other speakers and then they combine it. And it keeps, um, there's science that came out of MIT Media Lab that said like every time a new speaker walks on stage, it heightens the, they did, they had um, biorhythm things hooked up to their wrists and oh, stuff. Yeah. But it, it, they re-engage. They would re-engage when a demo was starting, like when a new, uh, it's novelty. When something novel happened on the stage, their brains uh, re-engage, their bodies actually physically re-engage. And so um, that's happening more. We're seeing some of those kinds of trends. It doesn't, which I think is good. I think it's good to mix it up. If you're telling a story about fear, could you have someone get up and share their personal story about fear? Like, does it always have to be one orator delivering it for the people? And in business, it's not anymore. Um, they're actually sharing the stage, which I think may be a little bit harder uh, for ministers to do because they feel like that's they're getting paid a paycheck to do that. But <laughs> it's getting interesting. I think things are changing. The one directional diatribe from one person is changing in business for sure. Isn't that interesting? Yeah, and that is, I mean, I think a lot of us would say in the church world, like I used to speak 110 times a year at our local church, you know, the midweek service and the Sunday morning service, I'd write that many messages. I just think the game, the game, it's not a game, but... (laughs) It's eternity, no big deal. Yeah, it's eternity, it's eternity, (laughs) it's just that. But I think things have changed so much culturally that I just have to work harder on the 30, 35 messages I have a year. And if I went back to 52, you can't just like open your mouth and hope something intelligent comes out. The audience expectation, I think for preachers, for business people, the audience expectation is so high and so different. Like I remember I spoke at South by Southwest and like, I don't know, 15 minutes into my talk or so, like 50 people came in and I'm like, what just what just happened? Because it was so obvious. I said, I'm sorry, but what just happened? They're like, oh, uh, someone tweeted that you were doing a good job. They got up and left somebody else's talk and came to my talk just on a tweet, right? So you have to realize that the audiences are choosy. They have seemingly less time or they're pickier about how they spend their time and they're going to make a choice based on, right? What's going to feed me Mm -hmm. most? I'll get up and leave. That's good. A lot of leaders use visuals. Um, and you do have that book, Slideology. I think you yeah. have a department now of your company, if I remember correctly, that actually just builds presentations for companies. That's how we you started. still do that? Yeah. yeah, yeah. we started as slide builders um, and then got into the story and content. So yeah, we have a lot of people and, and everything's changing so fast. So we have, you know, it's like, well, yeah, you could send us your deck and say, could you dollop our slides? But what's happening too is these uh, stages are getting so crazy. They're being, you know, several hundred feet wide. The canvases they're putting and projecting on are going overhead. They're creating these almost 360 degree immersive experiences. So my team is having to become very technical, very uh, cinematic um, in nature because they're they're getting more and more transformative um, as as we go. So that's been kind of fun as we work with you know major execs and stuff. And then then we'll also do sales enablement collateral in presentations. I have another book called Slide Docs, which gives you permission to make very dense slides and beautiful. You can make them look like magazine spreads actually, but you're supposed to distribute them and not present them. So you have a tool that's so dense you could read the deck or you're supposed to use them uh, as, a, as a visual aid or a prop behind you uh, or a setting like it's supposed to be your stage or your setting behind you when you're delivering it verbally. Um, and so 
yeah, we get a lot of um, slide doc work, we get presentation visual aid work, and then we get this like very technical cinematic embedded video work. So it's, it's been fun. It's, it's been changing over time. What are some pro tips for the person who is, you know, still working off PowerPoint or mm-hmm. Keynote or, you know, in church world, pro presenter? Yeah. You know, so we're not talking, we don't have a million dollars to build out this presentation. We don't have, you know, a, a $5 million stage. Um, but just for the average person who's like, gosh, I got this presentation in a boardroom or I'm speaking to my church of yeah. 500 people and yeah. they want to use some visual aids. This is Q3 yeah. 2018. I agree that uh-huh. things are changing fast. Yeah. But what what at this time is working? And then what are some absolute, man, just whatever you do, do not do this. Yeah. Yeah, I think uh, the tools are getting smarter, which is cool. Even PowerPoint will say, hey, do you want to design your slide to look like this, this, this? So you're getting like uh, artificial intelligence to help you make great slides. I think the big tip is that people don't consider is you can have one idea per slide. I do a 40-minute talk and there's almost 300 slides in it. But when I ask people, how many slides do you think there were? They're like 40, 50, because it's timed, I'm sequential, and it's it, it, it changes at a great pace. But um, people don't realize that you could you can have as many slides as you want as long as your cadence keeps up with it. Um, the other thing too is there's a lesser known presenter view. So if you, ha- I don't, I don't think it's fair to ask someone to memorize an entire talk. So that what I do is I put like just a word and it's my trigger to keep my structure in my mind. But you can put your notes. You can have two or three sentences in your notes like a teleprompter, and you can have that on a comfort monitor while your slides are behind you with that are more cinematic and simple. And so, yeah, you can you can have a lot of slides in your deck, and you can have it move at a rapid pace. Because to my point earlier, every we have a fight or flight instinct. So every time someone in the audience sees something move, their brain has to has to process: is this is this a threat, or is this okay? Am I safe, or is this a threat? Right. So every single time your slides move, it triggers them to re-engage and look at it, and then refocus back on what you're saying. So it's a way to keep them alert too, to have kind of a little bit more rapid pace on your decks and stuff like that. I tend to be a word person, but a lot of people are using a lot of images in their talks these days. Any rules or or best practices as far as people who love to use photo backgrounds or images or metaphors in their talks? Any thought on that? Yeah, I think, I mean, I, it, like use one photo per, like if you have multiple to show, show them sequentially or have them layer on top because they won't come back and listen to you till they've processed everything on your slide. If you have super dense data, they'll read your axes, they'll read this, they're, they're, they're trying to process it. So make it as visually uncomplex as possible. Um, I love that you asked about metaphor because I'm, I've been researching that a lot lately because they really stick. I mean, basically, Jesus' parables were all metaphors, right? Something of huge symbolic meaning that, that has so much wrapped into it. Uh, it's almost electrically charged by its nature. So I'm a huge fan of metaphor, of, of visuals. But, but we go straight to cliché. Like, just like everyone else, you're like, huh, I'm going to talk about networking. I'm going to go to Google Images. I'm going to find me an image of a network, and it'll bring up, like, glowy dots. And it's like, you know, could you think about that a little more carefully? Like, you know, what, like, you know that aspen trees are a network? A whole hillside of aspen trees is one tree, and their roots are networked. Could that be a better metaphor for what you're trying to convey than going straight to glowy balls on Google Images? You know, you think about... What is the nature of this network? What are attributes of it? Is it a secure network? Is it a cybersecurity network? That has a different nature and flavor to it. You just got to brainstorm away from the computer for a bit to say, if I'm talking about human flourishing, what does that mean? And are there metaphors and analogies I could use that would make it conveyed in a way that nobody else had considered to way that the people in the audience feel like, I almost can taste honey in my mouth because what you said and how you said it meant so much to me. How do we do that? And that's in the pictures that come out of our mouth and the pictures we show on the scene, on the screen, and how we construct things creates a level of beauty. And, and to be like, to be the spoken word experts when I, from, my, from where I've come from is, is such an honor. And everyone listening is also a spoken word expert or needs to become that because it's how we craft and what we say that if this is a leadership podcast, the people listening to this can change more lives than most podcasts, right? And it's a lot about how we communicate. That's a good thought. Thank you. I'll receive that as a gift. I hadn't actually processed it that way. You're right. 
uh, that's that's exciting to think about. Um, all right, can you use too many images or metaphors? I have seen you know fifty deck slides where every single slide is a brand new picture, a brand new you know. One day we're looking, one minute we're looking at trees. Ten seconds later, there's a handshake. The next, we're on a boat on the water, and the fourth slide, you know, is uh, outer space. And I, you forgot I find the that target conf- with the bullseye and the ripple of water. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. That one too. That one too. <laughs> the like, is that the can baton, there be too much? Like, I just at that point they've lost me. Is that just me? Am I weird? Yeah. No. <laughs> um, yeah, 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 yeah. Don't some answer of it's that. A personal style. Um, I use a combination of words and pictures, but I also use kind of thoughtful diagrams that help them spatially understand the relationships of things I'm conveying. It, it's yeah. I mean, I think you can have visual cognitive overload. It, I think more so if what they're saying doesn't match. Because if it's like, oh, there's a bullseye with a target, and they're talking about some other dorky thing, like that's when there's dissonance. Um, when there's dissonance, that's really bad. Um, but if you don't, if you're not the type of person that doesn't like a lot of images flipping in front of you, you know, uh, there is some some of that's personal preference. But yeah, yeah, some of that could be timed, and it almost is like a beautiful video with the pacing and the words and everything. It can be actually beautiful. It just depends. I, I'll I keep can up say my it just personal depends. crusade. Then I'll leave it personal. Keep uh, going, Carrie. We support you. Thank you, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> so your latest book, Illuminate, is fantastic. It is about change and communicating through change, something everybody has to struggle with, church world, business world. Um, I'm curious as to why you wrote it. Like, what is the link between communication and change and the motivation for for this? Yeah, I grappled with whether people would want to hear about leadership from the presentation lady, right? (laughs) But so much of what we crafted for so many years was driving change and we were already such deep students of storytelling. We actually had a uh, supposition that when you lead a movement, a movement follows a story pattern. Like you could call a movement open source in the community, in the technology world. You could call a movement what Dr. King did. You know, you could, you know, movement can be, um, change is a movement. Driving change to completion is a movement. So instead of it being like, one sermon or one message, you have to have communication over time that drives toward an outcome. And and we do that for people. We will we'll help you. Okay, at this moment, your team has this level of emotional fuel, so deliver this message. So we broke down a movement into five steps, and it follows a story pattern. Um, and those steps are dream, leap, fight, climb, arrive. And so dream leap is the beginning of the story. You cast your dream, and some people jump in right away. They're like, balls to the walls. I'm in. I guess I can say that on your podcast. Anyway, you they just jump. They just jump in, right? They hardly need anything. They're adventurous. But others are kind of heretics, right? They're not adventurous. They're kind of what? And and getting them to jump in to the messy middle because anytime you're driving change, the idea sounds great till everyone jumps in and they realize how hard it is. So that messy middle is the fight and climb phase, and that's what that's when. That's where your people are most of the time. They're like having to fight their own kind of demons. They're having to fight all these external pressure from you. And they're constantly asking themselves in their inmost cave, do I want to stay in this? Or was this more than I thought when I jumped in? And then climb. And in the fight phase, you need rally cries. We have this whole matrix inside the book. When you're in that phase, what they need. Um, In the endurance phase, um, they need stories that help them endure, um, speeches, stories, ceremonies, and symbols at each phase. And then when you arrive, sometimes you arrive and you're a victor, and sometimes you arrived and failed, and you need to own it. But you need to make sure everyone knows we've arrived. And then when you're going to move on, you need to know we need to leave the, all of this behind because we're starting over again. I loved writing that book. And when it hits leaders at the right time, at the right place in their career, they they love it. Like they They do love that book. And I enjoyed putting it together. It's a bit of a manual, I think, for yeah. leaders who are trying to navigate yeah. change. It's like, okay, in my mind, this is perfectly clear. I've got a preferred future for my church, for my company. I know where we need to go. I stood up and announced it. Nobody's cheering. I don't get it. I think I'm going to quit. <laughs> right? Yeah. Like, we've feels. all been there as leaders. Yeah, yeah. And That's that, funny. again, is is trying to empathize. And you take people, it's probably more than we can really get into in the rest of this podcast, but that sequence of dream, leap, 
fight, climb, and arrive. And then, you know, you, you explain the why behind the what, you tell stories, you motivate. So it's really almost like, what, a form of pastoral care in the midst yeah. of chaotic yep. change? Yep. And I think that um, a lot of leaders are kind of these type A temperaments that don't really know how to tap into what the emotional fuel is that people need. And, um, and, and, and yeah, they, it, it's not easy. It's hard to be uh, um, moved in mass because we're talking about scale, moving people in mass, like volumes of people that need to move with you. And, um, yeah, this book was fun. You know, people pay McKinsey millions or, or you know, some of these big consulting firms and they come up with a strategic plan. And this is the layer on top of it that's been missing for so long is this, that's great. We have a plan. The next step is only communicating it. And so that's kind of what this was, is what's the communication planning process that needs to happen around driving big change and how does it meet the needs of the people that have to pick up and move and travel with all their baggage? Because <laughs> <laughs> that's not easy. I'm so grateful for it. And, you know, the one constant in 23 years of leadership in the local church has been change. So yeah. I'm and so it thankful. It's the same thing. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and everything's changing more rapidly than before. I have to pull that book out so many times in my own shop. Like, I'm like, oh, I'm like, oh yeah, that's right. I wrote a book about this, right? Because it's like, <laughs> I, I, I'm just like, what do I, what do I, and I look at that, lo, the matrix and say, oh, we need, we need to do this. This is what they, they're feeling. So therefore we need to be communicating like this. It's been good. <laughs> It's helped me. <laughs> all right. So in terms of just, you know, of everybody who's going to be communicating in the next little while, we've covered a lot of ground in this interview. But if there's one or two things just that they should focus on, like the next time you open your mouth in front of other human beings, remember, what would you say? Remember blank. Wow. Um, well, the, remember the Proverbs. No. <laughs> <laughs> I'm... That's not my gifting because I just open my mouth and all kinds of stuff comes out. But um, I would say that um, I, I would say that um, being a good communicator is hard. It's not easy, and it takes work. And sometimes it's the it's the most work. I mean, I I know you have a front row seat with your marriage and your wife's career in in, in marriage counseling or you know divorce or it's all communication. Every single thing comes down to communicating. It's like the it's like the fuel. And, and if you look at even, you know, eternity, you know, you, you, it's, it's really about love. Did we give and receive and communicate love? And love has a lot to do with empathy. And I'm preaching to myself because I, I, I need that. And I think it's like really learning to read people and understand them and, and really make it about others and not ourselves. Um, that's what we're supposed to do before we open our mouths. Um, but we don't always do that. That's a good word. What uh, what is your favorite thing about communicating? Because you speak a lot. I do. I speak a lot. I love the um, I love seeing the eyes, the eyes twinkle, and and getting the notes. Like I get some pretty crazy notes. Like it was actually in a in the New York Times. Uh, Mark Matson said he made seven hundred million more dollars applying the methodology. Now in the business world, Whoa. that's a, that's a lot. And then a lot I get of money that, in the church world too, I would say. Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. That's true. Yeah. I, yeah, yeah that's, I have, that's, that's actually good. a ton that's more a money in the church world. So there's <laughs> like a so you you get these notes, but my favorites are like this. This life was changed. My nonprofit is flourishing, and it, that's my favorite thing is the notes of this. Here's this body of work. I felt I knew it came with great responsibility. I it didn't even consider or it didn't even cross my mind that it would also come with great reward. Um, and I think that's the thing that lights me up is just seeing the eye of the people when it when it clicks on and I know they're going to go back to their jobs and, and they get promoted. I'm seeing people go from manager to director to VP at a very bureaucratic hospital, a big, big national hospital chain. They're, it's working in people's that's lives. Amazing. I think that's the part that astounds me is like all the LinkedIn notes, all the, it's just, it's overwhelming. And I think that makes it worth it. Hmm. Well, as expert as you are in this and as much as you've studied it, I'm sure it's not always easy. What remains the hardest aspect of communication for you personally when you get up to speak or to write? Yeah, I, um, the writing is easier. It's, I've, I've figured out a discipline there. Um, when I get up to speak, if it's the same material, you know, I do adapt it to every audience. The hardest ones to speak to, again, are my own team, you know, because... Yeah. 
they know, you know, I get all the body, you know, when, when you're, when you're a public speaker, they're like panting. I mean, they came cause they want to hear you. So they like, you can hear the slurping sound. They're just <laughs> like, they just love it. Right. But when you're talking to your own team, they're like, uh Oh, Nancy's getting up there. You know, I heard that story skeptic. Yeah, 23 yeah. years, same church. I know what you mean. <laughs> you, the arms are kind of crossed and they're uh, looking at you like, oh, this what one again. Gonna, yeah. Or like, yeah. Or like, what is she going to ask me to do? And you can't even imagine what it's like to stand up in front of presentation experts. Like if my slides aren't amazing, they're, they're, I have no credibility, right? And I'm not, a, I'm not a good designer. So I start all my talks now with a piece of caution tape. My very first slide is caution. I made my own slides. Please forgive me. <laughs> and just focus on what comes out of my mouth, right? Or sometimes my slides, sometimes my slides are on my machine and I don't even show them. I just have a black background because I don't want the designers on my team are like, you know, do not compute, do not compute. Her visuals are ugly. Do not compute. You know, <laughs> so sometimes I have to just turn it off or I have this new style where I have an iPad with a pen and I just, I write a word. Like you're saying, you use words. I'll just write a word in my own handwriting. I'll draw a picture in my own way I draw. And they actually like that. They call it my signature style because it's, it's my writing. It's my illustration style. And, and they're kind of endeared to it now. It's kind of weird, but they can process my talk. If I handwrite my slides, it's kind of weird. So, um, that's my biggest thing is getting through and uh, I'm making it sound worse than it is. But when I'm driving big change, like we've got a season right now of big change, um, my team needs more fuel than I'm used to giving. So I'm being very in tune to that. And it's been fun. I've changed as a leader. Writing Illuminate changed me. Writing Resonate changed me. And I'm being tested in all those concepts, right? You put these concepts out there and you get tested in them. And uh, it's been pretty glorious. Painfully, I should say. <laughs> Nancy, this has been so honest, so refreshing, and a lot of fun. Um, people are going to want to know more. Where can they find you online and learn oh, more about nice. your company? Yeah, so the company's at Duarte.com. I'm on Twitter at Nancy Duarte, and I do connect to everyone who connects to me on LinkedIn. And uh, that's how it is. Wow. Nancy, thank you so much. You've been awesome, Carrie. This was so fun. What a gift. Now you get back out there and enjoy Mickey. And Is there any princess you want me to say hi to? <laughs> <laughs> who who would I, you know, who is my favorite Disney character? That's know. a great question. I, I would say well, it's got to be Mickey. I mean, it's got to yeah. be Mickey. Classic but I'm also Mickey. I'm also uh, you know, my favorite Warner Brothers cartoon character as a kid growing up was not Bugs Bunny, it was Yosemite Sam. So oh, nice. Nice. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the Tasmanian Devil. Absolutely oh, yeah. best. I've been to Yosemite, never been to Tasmania. Maybe next time. We'll see. <laughs> That's a good one. Hey, thank Nancy, you. thank you so much. I really appreciate it. That was great. Thanks. Well, that was gold. And there are a lot of links you're probably going to want to check out. So you can head on over to the show notes. You will always find those on my website, kerrynewhoff.com. If you go to kerrynewhoff.com slash episode 214, they're right there. Or you can go, if you can't spell that, to leadlikeneverbefore.com. Search out Nancy Duarte. You'll find it there. We have links to everything she talked about. I would highly recommend you pick up her book or books. Uh, Resonate is fascinating. So is her new one, Illuminate. And uh, yeah, Nancy, uh, thank you for doing this. Hey, we are back next week with a fresh episode. And I talked to Andy Stanley. And Andy and I break down his brand new book, it is called Irresistible, and Andy was really generous with his time. We spent about 90 minutes together, and you're going to get the backstage tour to what he's thinking and all, well, really, we spend most of our time talking about how to reach a post-Christian world. And then there's a moment at the end where I ask Andy about all the criticism he's gotten and how does he deal with it. You're, you're going to love it. So here's an excerpt from next week's episode. Where, what is legitimate about these complaints, even if they have horrible motives? And of course, I don't know what anybody's motive is. What, you know, what could I have done better or what could I do different? And, and um, if it's Twitter, I try to, to direct message people and apologize or get clarity. Um, or I'll even say to people, hey, follow me. I'll follow you back. And uh, that's the other thing that's so interesting. My critics, except for one person, none of them follow me on social media. So I can't even respond directly to them. It's, it's crazy. It's like, we're going to write an article about you, but I'm going to give you no way to actually respond directly to me. And the people who've been most critical of me in the past, I follow all of them on Twitter. Yeah. I, I, because I like talking about difficult things and the only way to learn is to talk about it. 
So Andy is back. Uh, those of you who have been here since the beginning know that he was episode one, two. Yeah. So Andy, it's great to have you back. Andy and I will be in California next week at the Deep and Wide Tour. I'll be there for the tail end of that. And then Orange Tour starts in Irvine, California as well. I'm so excited to be there. So that is the 17th and the 18th. So make sure if you're in LA, you drop by. Andy will be doing a one day, then Reggie Joyner and I are there. And I'll be teaching out of my new book, Didn't See It Coming. So really excited to do that. I would love to get to meet you. I am in Irvine, California. Then the following week, I am, where am I? Later in September, I will be also in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, and then Pittsburgh for the Future Forward Conference, plus a bunch of other dates this fall. So hope to meet you on the road. Oh, by the way, Detroit and Nashville the week after that. So a lot of travel coming up. Excited uh, for all of that. And remember, there's all kinds of stuff for you at didn'tseeitcomingbook.com, including a quiz that can help you figure out how cynical you are, how cynical your spouse is, <laughs> whether you're heading toward burnout, and a lot more. The book's available in audio, Kindle, and of course, hardcover as well. So you can get all that information at didn'tseeitcomingbook.com, or you can also go to uh, anywhere you get your books because it is widely available. And uh, hey, remember, train your volunteers well. You know, that is so important to alignment. It's so important for health and safety. It's so important in kids' ministry, just honestly for safety. And uh, the easiest way to do it these days is to go to trainedup.church. You will see everything there. They'll give you a free live demo. And if you buy, use the coupon code CAREY, C-A-R-E-Y, for 10% off for life. So we got a couple more episodes this week. I'm really excited for those tomorrow. Free chapter of the audiobook Thursday, a backstage look at a launch, as well as a Q&A with my launch group, members of my launch group. It's going to be a lot of fun. Next week, back with our regularly scheduled episode with Andy Stanley, Francis Chan, the week after that. Hey, if you subscribe, you get it all for free automatically on your devices. Thanks so much for listening, guys. Hope our time together today has helped you lead like never before. You've been listening to the Carrie Newhoff Leadership Podcast. Join us next time for more insights on leadership, change, and personal growth to help you lead like never before.